This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. On today's episode, a wave of far-right politics seems to be sweeping across Europe. We ask why and whether it'll wash up here. And in The Columnist, Manveen Rana and Matthew Bell on lessons in leadership from Tony Blair and Nicola Sturgeon. And do you know Phil from Iceland? And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can listen to me live, Politics at the Boring Bits, on Times Radio. Listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. It's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Now, today, we issue an urgent appeal. Are you Phil? Do you know Phil? If you listened yesterday, you'll know that PMQs was all filler, no killer. This week, I met one of the employees at Iceland in Warrington, Phil. I got something to say, got something to say. Phil and millions of people like him. All right. People like Phil. Phil and millions of other workers, not just at Iceland. I hope he explained to Phil the cost of his policies. And did he explain to Phil that he'd be better off sticking with our plan rather than going back to square one with him? I would invite the Prime Minister to get in touch with Phil. I don't know if he mentioned that to Phil. I actually didn't expect him to be laughing at Phil. Can you feel me if you know Phil from Iceland, do get in touch. Maybe you are Phil from Iceland. We've tried all the Icelands, they don't know Phil. But if you do know Phil from Iceland, tell him I want to speak to him. Can he drop round a big bag of Aunt Bessie's Yorkshire puddings? Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Ah, Manveen Rana's here. Manveen, how are you? Oh, I'm well. Are you empty-handed? No, no. Oh, thank goodness. You, you, ran, you ran past the box of pastries. Oh, yeah, it was my... I, I <laughs> may... I don't think anyone noticed. No, nobody noticed. But I may have not been back. It was very elegantly in done. In the studio when the music... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought you sounded like the leader of the pack. I'm here now, I'm here now, I'm here now. It's very important, it's very important. Uh, so, Marvin is here, and we've got Matthew Bell. Matthew, how are you? I'm very well indeed. I'm very sad not to be in the studio with you. It looks like fun. Yeah. You should come in. It'd be nice to I see you. I will do. Yeah. I'll, I'll pop in. Yeah, Especially okay. now that you have your own sound. I mean, that's... Oh, look at little Aston. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to those Matthew Paris. <laughs> <laughs> You'll need an accordion or something. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we should. We get a whole, a whole right, set. Right, that's of, next week. A whole set of... I'm going to have to learn the accordion by next week. Uh, right, let's talk about lessons in leadership. Tony Blair we learn, has written a guide to political leadership for the busy aspiring leader to be published in uh, September. He says, governing a nation is, in one sense, a little like being the national football coach of a football-crazy nation. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone thinks they can do it better uh, than you. Uh, so, but he thinks that people need some advice. This book is not an academic work or designed to be comprehensive. It's a short guide to governing for the busy aspiring leader. Manreen, <laughs> who could he possibly have in mind? Uh, no idea. No idea. Um, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? But what, why, you know, I'm sure he's talking to Keir Starmer about this stuff anyway, but why make it public? And I'm sure he gets paid an awful lot of money for advising leaders around the world on this stuff too. Um, so to make it all public feels like, um, 
well, yet another opportunity to make some money, I guess. But it does sort of sound a bit like one of those you know, sort of guides to being a good leader in business that you see in airport, airport. lounges. That's exactly what I thought. But then, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there's always that moment where you see somebody on a plane with one and you kind of silently judge them. And I sort of think, who <laughs> who would want to be seen reading How to Be an Aspiring Leader? By Tony Blair. I mean, you But they're massive, else, those books, aren't they? They are, but not many people want to sort of admit that they're secretly plotting to, <laughs> to, yeah. to be the leader of a country. Oh, that's true. What sort of person buys that? How to get ahead in business, fine. Fine. Yeah. Matthew, are you a fan of a, of a how-to self-help business guide? Well, only if they've got specifics in them. And that's my main worry with this book, is it's going to be a load of management speak waffle with nothing tangible or useful. What we really want to know is, you know, what, as Prime Minister, what do you get the Cabinet Secretary for Christmas? And uh, how do you remember the name of the cat? And all these other sort of specific oh, so that's tips. That's really useful. Yeah. Those are tips Prime you could Minister. use. But I think it's not, it's not going to be like that, is it? It's going to be exactly, as you say, those, those books you see cramming the walls at Waterstones. Uh, and they obviously do very well and there's a big market for them, but um, they're so boring and, and actually useless. It's just a load of hot air that will probably make him quite a bit of money. <laughs> I remember um, interviewing Matthew Barzen, who used to be, he was Obama's ambassador in the UK, so the US ambassador yes. in the UK, because uh, he had a book, a book out. And I, you know, basically wanted to speak to him about Obama and, you know, dinners and, you know, relations, and you know, special relations. But the book, it had diagrams in it and it was all about I can't, diagrams. I can't remember what it was called what do you draw like the, here we are the power of giving away how the best leaders learn to let go um and it, it had like triangles in it and you had to work your way up the or down <laughs> the pyramid of power to the oh i you hope know, the blair book has some of that, all that. and i just thought this isn't what i wanted i wanted and there, he had a little bit of you know those stories Gossip. in but i suspect he identified that a sort of a minor diplomatic memoir wasn't going to sell as well as this sort of gobbledygook. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think we always assume gossip sells, but actually there is this huge market for sort of, you know, Harvard Business School type of analysis. Um, And I guess, you know, to be fair to him, for Tony Blair, when he came in, you know, rather like Starmer faces now, you know, that the the memory of having been in power for Labour was so distant, he wouldn't have had people to advise him. And, you know, it's often said that he feels he sort of squandered that first term, didn't know how yeah, to make yeah. use of it. So I can imagine, you know, I imagine there probably are genuine tips, but I just wonder whether he'd actually, he's, he's not the most self-effacing man. I can't imagine him sort of admitting to most of those. Matthew, I've just found some details of the Matthew Barson book. It was, it was all about, that's right, it was all about pyramids. It was all top down uh, uh, with the, all the authority at the top. And then after that, people said it should be bottom up. But the problem is the pyramid. And so you had to get rid of the pyramid and move to a, I can't remember what the other shape was. A circle? Bottom, bottoms up, that sounds all right. But, uh, but what happened to him? Is he now, I mean, I think he's disappeared off the diplomatic scene, hasn't he? So it hasn't worked for him, this bottoms up approach. No, that's true, actually. I don't know what he does now. Anyway. Um, Teaches geometry. <laughs> um, uh, but then we've also had this week uh, Nicola Sturgeon and her leadership being sort of, you know, put into question. She was asked, she got a bit upset actually yesterday when she was asked, did you feel you were the right leader for the moment being in charge of the pandemic? But then also, while saying, you know, she's being all upfront and honest about it, they also said, let's take a listen to this, this was her about the COVID inquiry, and she didn't politicise the pandemic. You are a staunch supporter of Scottish independence. It runs through you to your very core, does it not? It does. Is it possible, do you think, for you to take decisions on any matter without seeing them through the prism of Scottish independence and your burning desire to achieve it? Uh, yes, I, I know for a fact it is. And if I ever doubted that before uh, COVID, although I had other examples of, of doing that in the job of being First Minister and Health Secretary before that, I have been in politics for 30 years. I've been a lifelong campaigner for independence. I don't think in my entire life... Uh, have I ever thought less about politics generally and independence in particular than I did during the course of the pandemic? Is that credible, Matthew, that Nicola Sturgeon didn't think about independence during the pandemic? Well, it seems a bit much when, I mean, it seems absurd to be accusing a politician of being too political or or politicising an issue because that's precisely what they're there to do. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very... I think it's unfair on Nicola Sturgeon to accuse her of that because, of course, she is a single-issue politician and that has been 
she's been fighting for independence ever since she'd been in power and long before that. Uh, and so, yes, of course, a part of her was, will always have been thinking about that and how she could play any situation to her advantage. But um, it, it, this, uh, this comparison of the, the Scottish response and the English response to COVID and trying to find uh, causes and motives for the way in which she dealt with it, I think it's all a distraction. I think, you know, um, the bigger topic here and, and what they should be uh, concentrating on is why she deleted so many WhatsApp messages. Uh, and, and I think that could be the cause of her undoing in the end is the, is the obstruction to the truth. I don't think really whether she was thinking about whether she this will play into her favour for her long-term political cause. I'm not sure that's really relevant because of course she would have been doing that. I mean, that's what all politicians are doing. They're thinking on the long game. They're thinking of how any situation can play to their advantage. But I suppose it does matter, Manveed, if she was taking decisions because they contrasted well in a PR sense with Boris Ooh. Johnson. Yeah, the fact that she seemed to wait a week before doing the same thing. You know, he would do something. They'd say, we're not doing that. That's irresponsible. Then they'd do it. You know, politics was clearly playing a part in that. You know, she would come out and criticise the slogan that the Westminster government was using or, or the decisions that they were making. Politics was obviously playing a part in this. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think as, as the question to her implied, I think it's so ingrained. Um, you know, I mean, maybe she doesn't realise it. I think she probably does. I think her entire core political belief is about showing the distance and the difference. And I think there's probably a bit of sort of just the personal too, where, you know, with her comments on Boris Johnson, you know, we know some of, some of the, the messages that were found sort of have her sort of describing him as an effing clown and, you know, a disgrace to politicians everywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, that doesn't you, suggest that politics wasn't on her mind. Exactly. But, you know, you can tell that she, she has so little respect mm. for Westminster. That's kind of her core belief. And any opportunity to highlight that is probably a good thing. Um, and, you know, I thought it was really interesting that she, uh, you know, she, having lost all of her messages, not being able to, to explain what was in any of them, she did manage to find some direct messages to two very well-known epidemiologists, yeah, yeah. you know, Debbie Shridhar, who was sort of, you know, like the oracle of, of the, the pandemic at the start and who was very, very complimentary about Nicola Sturgeon's handling. So I think she keeps trying to sort of direct people to the, but I was doing it by the science when Westminster wasn't. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they were, I could see that they were, they were messing up and I wanted to, to hold, hold myself apart. Or maybe she should write a book on... Uh... Well, I did think, like, just on the skill of being a politician, I thought she she carried off that, that you know, her appearance at the COVID inquiry. I mean, I, I sat through Boris Johnson's and Rishi Sunak's, and, you know, she is incredibly polished. There are massive holes in her testimony where you think, but hang on, how did you manage to, how did you have no WhatsApps? How did you say you did when you didn't? How did you not minute any of your key meetings? And yet... You know her. Uh, the way she comes across, uh, you know, I can't remember who it was who sort of said, "If you can, if you can do um, uh, sort of sincerity, you're, you're, you know, you're made." You can you can make that. You can make that. that. Yeah, and she she just, you know, she was her her apology was much more sincere than any of the other ones we've seen. It just, you know, she's very good at this. Uh, let's move on because I want to talk about uh, MP safety. Well, I suppose it, maybe it is also connected to the way we treat and talk about uh, politicians. Uh, Mike Freer, who's a government minister and Tory MP, has said he's going to leave Parliament uh, after threats to his safety, includes an alleged arson attack on his constituency office uh, last month. Let's just take a listen. There's a little clip of when I spoke to uh, the Labour MP, Jess Phillips, about why she thinks politics is so dangerous. It never crossed my mind that uh, the sort of the threats and violence would be quite as what they are today. I mean, she was talking about having a whole folder that she keeps in her house of just sort of restraining orders and threats that would be made against and you know she is high profile but um i mean i asked her well would you is it, is it ever occurred to you that you you would stop politics or if you'd known would you have not gone into it she said no 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 because that would i would think that i was sort of letting them win but there must be the clearly mike free has reached a point where he just he and his husband just can't live with this anymore it's, yeah, um, I mean, I, I think I think that makes perfect sense. There was there was a moment a um, a couple of years back where Yvette Cooper's daughter came out and talked about it, and you realise yeah. that you know there is 
you know, the threats are, are so vast now in a way that they weren't before. And you have so many incidents where people realise that they're not just, you know, they're not just sort of emails or just tweets where people are threatening violence. You know, you've had Joe Cox being yeah. killed. You've had, um, you David know, Amos David well. Amos. And, you know, you've had attacks against Stephen Timms. It, you know, it is now something that if you are going into politics, you would have to think about seriously. And of course, the moment there is a risk to you, there is the pressure of that on everybody around you. And I can imagine that must be difficult. Matthew, what can we do about it? Because uh, is it fair to draw a line between politicians who are getting increasingly, uh, I don't know, outspoken about each other? Is it is it just social media that people now feel empowered to be direct, more direct with politicians than they would have been? You know, the age at the end of the age of deference probably isn't a bad thing, but what can we do about it? Who who is at fault? Well, I think what can we do about it? The the only thing, and what I think does need to happen now, is we start need to start putting money towards protecting MPs who are particularly vocal on sensitive issues, like Mike Freer, who talks a lot about Israel, and and you know that's it's no coincidence that he feels particular uh, threats at the moment. Um, and so I think you know backbench MPs who are brave enough to champion controversial issues. There should be money allocated to protect them, especially when they're in their constituencies uh, having surgeries, because that's when they're most vulnerable. They're probably safer when they're in, a, in the House of Parliament. Um, so I think money is, is sadly one way of dealing with it. But it's, it is interesting. What are the root causes of this and why is it happening so much now? And I think you have to look at the way in which people view uh, public servants now, it, which is everything is based on a sort of client uh, situation. Everyone thinks they're, they're a client of a business and that they want customer service. And so they see MPs as, oh, we pay for them. They've got to do this for us. They've got to dance to our tune. And you see this with uh, almost all public services, the judiciary, police, and so forth. But they're not really, yes, we pay for them in the end through our taxes, but there shouldn't be this um, capitalistic commercial approach to them where you think, well, I'm the paying customer and therefore I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z, because you couple that with social media and the dehumanising of so many parts of life. And it's now easier than ever to be a, a bedroom bully, to be sending messages to anyone you want with no real consequences. Like Jess Phillips was saying, you know, the, the blizzards of emails she now gets because it's just so easy to troll her by adding her uh, email address to all sorts of things. So it's become easier than ever to be a troll. And I think, um, so, 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 it's, it's, so the causes are unfortunately very long-term and, and almost insurmountable. But in the, in the immediate real term, we cannot afford to lose brave, intelligent people who are prepared to be MPs and who are prepared to fight on these issues. They have to be protected. Does it, is there something about, as well, just the way that politics people in politics talk about each other. They, they yeah. just feel like we've gone from, uh, I just think you're wrong, I think that's a bad idea, my idea is better than yours, to you're a bad person and I'm a better person. That you, you know, there's malign intent or there is... Uh, do you know what I mean? I, I sort of feel like in my lifetime, um, it's gone from a very witty riposte, which would tell you you weren't very smart, but in such a clever way that you probably wouldn't even understand it. You know, yeah. so it was sort of parliamentary debate to a situation. It kind of reflects politics too. So, you know, this part of this is social media and it's the polarisation of politics and the fact that we can't seem to have public discourse without people shouting at each other now. Yeah, yeah. And I think that contributes because, you know, every day people are on social media and sort of seeing new reasons to be furious with these MPs. And because they see MPs on social media, in the past they used to seem like they were sort of, a, you know, a class apart, you couldn't really get near them. Now you feel like you can send them abuse every day. You kind of build up that relationship where, where you feel like you can attack them. It's, I mean, it's horrific. But Matthew, even how did PMQs, was it last week, where Keir Starmer said that Rishi Sunak had laughed in the face of a woman who wanted to talk about the NHS, which actually turned out to be a badly edited clip, which was circulated online, and it turned out he didn't laugh and walk off. They ended up having a longer conversation. But then Rishi Sunak accuses Keir Starmer of representing terrorists, was actually, as a lawyer, he was just doing what lawyers do. And you just think of the two people, I mean, fundamentally, actually, decent people, both Rishi Sunak mm. and Keir Starmer, if they're lowering themselves to basically, you know, Boris Johnson did it with the Jimmy Savile stuff, lowering yourself in the House of Commons to the level of nutty person on Facebook, then it's sort of giving licence to everyone, isn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a sort of, you know, disappointed Bufton Tufton from the Shires, but you do sort of worry about the... Matthew, that's you why know. you're here. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, the general decline in public standards, you know, it, it's, it's incredible. And it's exactly as you say, if, if, if the people we hold in high office, they can't even be expected to behave properly, um, there's, there's very little hope for the rest of us. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, very sad. And there needs to be a sort of somehow a profound correction to the way people behave in public life. Uh, I, I don't know what the solution is without, you know, harking back to the, to the past. Uh, but something has to be, I mean, in all, we're finding this in all spheres of life. You know, you see this, people getting so angry when things don't work. And it, it is frustrating when things don't work. But you mustn't take it out on the person immediately in front of you who's probably being paid very badly and is the, is the sort of front line. And then we've seen this with, you know, just a classic example of this is, is the post office scandal. You see the small people at the front line suffering, whilst people at the top uh, get away with it. And so there is this, I think, frustration in everyday life that things aren't working and, you, and people are taking it out mm. in, in, you know, on, on the people they can do. But really, it's, it's at the top that the, the problem lies. Um, I don't know what, yeah. I, I mean, we just have to be carry on writing letters to the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> <laughs> it also feels like it's a bit of a vicious circle. So you get sort of, you know, most of these politicians know if they really go at uh, the opposition at PMQs, if they say something insulting, it'll get clipped and yeah, passed yeah, around yeah. on social media. And, and that fuels yeah, yeah. more than the, ang- the, the people anger. Think, well, if they're doing it in the comments, I could do it. And then yeah, it, yeah, it, it feels on. it. But then no, nobody's going to clip up a, an MP saying something quite tepid. Well, uh, what has been clipped up a lot is everyone talking about Phil. Let's just have a little reminder. Let's boil down half an hour of PMQs to 13 seconds. This week, I met one of the employees at Iceland in Warrington. Phil. People like Phil. Phil and millions of people like him. Phil and Phil. 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 I actually didn't expect him to be laughing at Phil. Now, stop laughing at Phil. (laughs) We have tried to find Phil. We've contacted both Iceland branches in Warrington. They don't know a Phil. Labour insists he, he does exist, but he doesn't, That's want to, a he doesn't want to talk. Which got us thinking about when politicians cite members of the public. Uh, and who better to speak to than our very own Phil, Phil Webster, uh, former politicator of the Times. Phil, how are you? Good morning. You Good don't, morning. You don't, work in, uh, you don't work in Iceland, do you? I don't. I don't. I, feel, I think I should speak up for all the nation's fills, actually, because whether he's called Phil or not, um, you could imagine everybody running around Warrington at the moment looking for anybody who could be Phil. And if his mortgage has gone up by a thousand a month, he's probably got, you know, a decent mortgage anyway and probably got a decent house up there. So... There'll be people after him. Poor old Phil will not have a quiet weekend. There aren't that many Phils left, though, Phil, because I looked up in 2022 that there were, uh, I think, 134 babies called Phil. No, born called Philip with one eye. Slightly few, about 20-year-olds with two eyes. It's massively down on where it was like 10, 15 years ago. Philip without one eye? No, not eyes. Ls. Ls, you mean. Yeah. Ls, you mean. If you were born with one eye, that's different. (laughs) But, yeah. um, Phil, there's a, there is obviously a history of this. I've got to pick out a couple of these. This is David Cameron in 2010 during the ITV election debate offering up this tell from a real person. I was in Plymouth recently and uh, a 40-year-old black man actually made the point to me. He said, I came here when I was six. I've served in the Royal Navy for 30 years. I'm incredibly proud of my country. But I'm so ashamed that we've had this out-of-control system with people abusing it so badly. And lots of people pointed out that you can't, you can't be a 40-year-old black man who'd served in the Navy for 30 years unless he joined when he was 10. And actually, the, that man, Neil Ford, actually came forward in the end and, and, was, and was critical of the Tories' position on immigration. It was always the risk. And then this is, uh, I love this, Gareth. Uh, in 2014, Ed Miliband, in his uh, party conference speech, mentioned Gareth a lot. Millions of people who've lost faith in the future. Like Gareth, who's high up at a software company. He's got a five-year-old daughter. He's earning a decent wage. He can't afford to buy a home for himself and for his family. He's priced out by the richest. He thinks that unless you're one of the privileged few in Britain, the country's not going to work for you and your kids are going to have a worse life than you. Uh, Phil, I really remember that speech because uh, almost everyone that Ed Miliband met to show that he was in touch with the nation, he'd met on Hampstead Heath. That's right. I mean... Uh, not not the uh, not the poorest part of London anyway. And poor old Gareth, who actually was called Gareth Edwards, um, same name as one of the 
best rugby players of all time. Gareth, uh, it sort of changed his life for a time. He ended up being grilled on Newsnight by Emily Maitlis, and that's, <laughs> that's never a good idea. Just ask the Duke, Duke of York about that. And, um, and uh, the Daily Mail found a picture of him drinking the most massive cocktail you could imagine. So <laughs> Gareth had to explain himself uh, for ages afterwards. He ended up being... He went to Cambridge. To Does it ever work? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it can. I think it can be quite an effective tool. But, you know, if you're using somebody like Gareth, who is quite high up in a, a software company, most people are already, you know, he's not exactly a man of the people. You've got to do it very carefully. Um, and I think you can't do it too much. You know, there was a period with Jeremy Corbyn, where it felt like every PMQs, he was just bringing up the individual cases yeah, of various yeah, yeah, yeah. people. And it started to feel like it was like the local political surgery rather than the moment, yeah. you know, the whole nation <laughs> looked yeah. forward to. Matthew Bell and Manveen Rudd, and of course you can listen to Manveen every day on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you're listening to this. Up next, it's the rise of the far right across Europe. are responding. And could this wave of far-right politics wash up here in the UK? Well, how better to find out what is happening across Europe? Put your seats in the upright position, please. We're heading off on Shorty Airways. And we touch down in France first, where, as we just heard, those farmers are protesting. Let's speak to uh, Clea Colcutt, who is a senior correspondent in France for Politico Europe. Hi, Clea. Hi, Matt. Give us a sense of what is happening, because I've, I've read a lot about farmer protests across Europe aligning with uh, far-right movements or far-right movements trying to align with the farmer protests. So give, give us a sense of what's going on in France. Absolutely. So we've got a farmer's protest that's been going on for about a week now with farmers uh, heading on their tractors to block motorways, um, take the protest to Paris, so blocking the main marketplace here with some clashes with police. Now, farmers aren't traditionally far right. They're more of the sort of liberal, conservative, sort of mainstream. Um, however, with, you know, we're going into an election phase. We've got elections coming up in, in June, European elections. Uh, the far right is kind of surfing on the uh, farmers' discontent about a range of things which are, you know, all linked to the European Union, whether it's trade deals, whether it's, uh, you know, the Green Deal, whether it's uh, bureaucracy in Brussels. Um, so that's how it's become a sort of crux point in France where you've got, you know, the sort of pro-European uh, Macron government trying to battle Marine Le Pen on, you know, with this farmers' protest carrying on. What do the farmers actually want? Well, they're very clear about their demands. I mean, they want uh, the Mercosur trade deal, which is a sort of free trade deal with Latin American countries, 
to be basically shot down. They want uh, biodiversity rules to be loosened so that they can carry on farming instead of putting their... Um, their uh you know their fields in 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 sort of in west zone so that you can have sort of um you know wild flowers and things like that and then uh they want there's some sort of subsidies on diesel fuel that was supposed to be lifted and they want those subsidies to be maintained now the government is reacting very strongly to this because they don't want it to spiral so they've already given in on a whole load of things including subsidies on diesel um is it so it's not necessarily right-wing issues that they're cross about. Is it just that right-wing parties, movements are aligning with them? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the far-right, Marine Le Pen's far-right mm. um, um, national front has always been campaigning on patriotism for French farmers, things like that. So, for example, ag protectionists. And now the farmers, um, you know, uh, uh, a certain as part of them are protectionists. They want France to fight for their rights. They don't want an influx of cheap Ukrainian grain. They don't want an influx of beef. So there is a sort of an alignment between the farmers and Marine Le Pen. But on the other hand, you know, they're businessmen. And Marine Le Pen also has, you know, a whole host of economic measures that they're not really happy with. Uh, but what's true is that... Uh, the way it's playing out in the uh, the popular opinion is that it's, you know, it looks very much like Marine Le Pen is standing up for the ordinary man, standing up for the farmers. And that this is a kind of like big boost for her, or at least they're hoping to kind of ride this through up to the elections. Clear, it's really interesting that. Thanks for that. Politico's clear cold cut uh, in Paris. Right, let's get back on the plane. <laughs> Surely Airways touching down in Berlin, where we are greeted by more protests. These are German farmers protesting. Why? The Times' Oliver Moody can explain. Hi, Ollie. Hello. Um, what are German farmers protesting about? Well, ostensibly, uh, protests were triggered by um, the new budget from the German government, which scrapped the road tax exemption for agricultural vehicles and lorries, and also scrapped the subsidies for agricultural diesel. But the government has compromised on these issues, and now the farmers' unions are raising a whole host of other things that overlap to some extent with what Claire was describing in France. So a lot of it is about biodiversity, the burden of bureaucracy in a general sense that they're sort of weighed down with too many regulations. Um, is it taking, is it sort of taking off? Is it taking hold in Germany? I'd say it's been broadly stable. It peaked about two weeks ago when there were really massive blockades in the big cities that really brought public transport to a standstill in places like Berlin and Hamburg. Since then, uh, the protests have continued, but they're at a lower level than they were before. And uh, tell us about what's happening with the AFD, um, the Alternative for Deutschland uh, group in, in Germany. Where, where is support for them? Yeah, it's a very interesting moment because uh, the, the AFD has revived in the polls and for the past six months or so, it's been trending at about 22%, which would make it the largest, second largest party nationally. And in the East German states, which go to the poll, three of which go to the polls in the autumn, it's by far the most popular party. Yet it's got a bit more complicated than it used to be, partly because the party landscape has been shaken up. There are two new populist parties that get eaten to its vote a bit. And secondly, because of all these various reports of secret summits where members of the AFD consorted with bona fide right-wing extremists and discussed the mass expulsion of uh, foreigners, including people who have German passports that were born in other countries, and that has unleashed a mass kind of centrist protest movement with hundreds of thousands of people marching across the country. So AFD strategists are actually a bit concerned that this could eat into their polling figures. And is that, right? because I've seen the, the sort of the pictures and the scales of those protests, the sort of the anti-far-right protests, are they having an impact in sort of squeezing the AFD support that actually, instead of just sort of pretending they're not there, proactively speaking out against them is having an effect? 
We haven't seen that much of a shift in the polls so far, but it may just be too early to tell. Uh, one potential bellwether was a municipal election in the AFD's heartland in Thuringia over the weekend, where it looked like it was in a very strong position to get control of the local council in Zala Orla, but um, it actually ended up losing by about three or four percentage points to a mainstream candidate after the other parties rode around it. I guess the, the, the biggest short-term effect is that the, um, the other kind of older parties have set aside their differences, at least briefly and on some issues, to rally around this kind of counter right-wing protest movement. And so we may see some kind of consolidation of the mainstream forces in general. Just, just finally, Oliver, does, this, um, immigration, does immigration play a part in this as well? You know, this is a fascinating question, yeah, because the, the received wisdom is that the AFD's revival has all been about concern about immigration after Germany took in about a million war refugees from Ukraine and then more than 300,000 asylum seekers last year, which is not quite at the level it was in 2015, 2016, but is getting up in that general direction. What we've seen recently, though, is that um, the salience of immigration is a political question has declined a bit recently, but the AFD support is holding up. And I think that points to a much broader, deep distrust in a large minority of the German public towards the political system, towards conventional politics, towards the mainstream parties that the AFD can feed on, even if it switches from immigration to issues like Green Agenda. Oliver, thanks so much for that. Oliver Moody there in Berlin. Right, back on the plane then. Grab your duty free. To get duty free, you probably don't if you're going from uh, Berlin. We're in Amsterdam now. Uh, Mark Smith is in Amsterdam. Hi, Mark. Hi, Matt. It's a short hop. It's not far. It's not far. It's, it's very nice journey to make on the train, as I discovered last summer. We couldn't, didn't need to go on the plane at all. Um, what's the What's the picture in uh, in uh, the Netherlands? A general election coming this year? No, last year. That's right. We had a general election in November. The surprise victor in that was Gert Wilders, the far-right firebrand who's been on the scene for a long time, certainly since I arrived in the Netherlands. And that was, gosh, 15 years ago. Um, he has been consistently underestimated, and this time he did it. He now has a quarter of the parliament um, but he needs participation from at least two other parties to get over the line. That's where we are at the moment. We've been promised a period of radio silence while um, representatives from those parties get that act together. But um, with a characteristic verve, you could say, Herit Wilders has broken that silence on a number of occasions. Um, last week, he seemed to be spoiling for a sort of Twitter spat um, when he tweeted, we have a serious problem. And that actually went viral way beyond the confines of the Netherlands. And, and so is this a sign of a shift in, in Dutch politics? Is it, are they just a protest vote to, to you know, um, signal the unhappiness with the mainstream parties? Or, or is this a sign of Dutch politics changing, do you think? Not necessarily. I think he's been a fairly consistent... Um, feature of the Dutch political landscape for some time. Um, he certainly has a very loyal fan base. He says things which in other contexts, in other countries, you might think would be completely unspeakable. Um, you know, he's been prosecuted for stirring up um, anti-Moroccan sentiment mm. at rallies. Um you know, he said all sorts of derogatory things about closing mosques. He wants zero asylum. Um, immigration is a sticking point, of course, in this small country um, where there are 20, typically 20,000 or so uh, asylum seekers from outside the EU seeking to come here every year. Um, and he has been fairly consistent, actually. It was only in the run-up to the election in November that he earned the nickname Gert Milders um, for softening his rhetorical approach somewhat. But I think the memory of those very uh, vivid, very shocking uh, pronouncements on asylum, on immigration, on Europe, um, I think they have a long half-life. I don't think people will forget them um, 
in a matter of months. However, coalition talks famously take a long time in the Netherlands. Uh, I think it was in 2001 when they took uh, 299 days. Um, so we're in for a, a long ride, potentially. Uh, just finally, Mark, you, you, did you encounter Gert Wilders on holiday? You've been doing your research. <laughs> yes. Uh 2012, um, when he was seen as the political kingmaker in another election, um, you know, he worked briefly with the, uh, the, the, the centre-right party that's been governing the Netherlands for most of the time since I've been here. Um, I went on holiday. I wanted to holiday like the Dutch do. I went to the Dutch Antilles and to a very small island called Bonaire, beautiful place, can recommend it. Um, arrived at check-in and saw his name on the ledger at reception and assumed it was some kind of joke that maybe some VIP <laughs> had checked in under his name. And then I was disabused of that notion the, the notion the next morning when my husband and I went down to the restaurant and realised that we were the only other people in the whole hotel. <laughs> it, it did explain a few things. I mean, there had been some rather tetchy looking uh, young guys in suits who kept popping up from behind the uh, the palm trees. And they, they seemed to look um, especially worried whenever I took my phone out of my pocket. Uh -huh. I realised the next morning that it was all about him. You know, he and his wife, who is uh, ironically, you might say, a Hungarian diplomat, um, they've been together for 30 years and they live in strictest secrecy. They're protected around the clock uh, by a security detail, the, the ones that I saw on holiday. And that's mainly because the Dutch have an unenviable tradition of killing their, their populists um, in the street. Oh well, yeah, it's a, it's a, 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 a grim statistics to uh, for them for them to have. Mark, really good to speak to you. Uh, that's Mark Smith in Amsterdam. Mark, we're back on the plane now. Again, it would be easy to go on the train. Doesn't take very long at all. We're heading to Brussels, where Bruno Waterfield joins us. Where are you right now, Bruno? I'm on the big farmers what are they burning behind you Bruno they're burning tactics of course so it's a huge protest EU leaders are just down the road there they're feeling a bit under siege yet another Another political crisis going on, the farmer protests, but also uh, splits and divisions um, over Ukraine as well. So this is a huge farmer's protest here. There are farmers from, certainly from Belgium, they've been protesting all week. Spain, France, Portugal, Poland, you name it, they're here today. This is a huge pan-European protest movement because most of the things, almost everything they're against, almost everything that's causing really big problems in consequence of EU decisions, whether it's environmental legislation, they're worried about the Mercosur free trade deal that's been vetoed by France. Anyway, the EU's decision to allow tariff-free imports of Ukrainian uh, agricultural products into the single market to help Kiev, that has hammered the farmers. The cereal prices collapsed by almost a third um, over the last two years. The farmers have got plenty to be angry about, and they believe that urban, metropolitan, green sites, garden readers, vegetarians, vegans, are actually against their way of life. They're quite happy to see their communities, their rural communities. And is there concern amongst those uh, politicians up the road from where you are, Bruno, about the far right in all of those countries aligning with what is obviously a very angry protest amongst farmers? Well, I think, I think look, Look, for our newspaper, for our readers to, to make sure that we're, we're clear and explain things, we don't really use the term far right. What we do is to try and individually describe and talk about each government, because these are governments as well, whether it's Victor Orban in Hungary or Georgia Maloney in Italy. We try and describe what each movement is. The term far right has become, you know, a catch-all. It doesn't really explain a lot of the support for these farmers or even the parties um, of the hard right, the nationalists or anti-Europe um, in Belgium. What's going on here under, under sort of more subterranean or more seismic is a popular disenchantment, a popular revolt uh, against the centrist mainstream. You can see this playing out in different ways right across Europe. So after European elections, 
This June, the polls predict nine, nine new EU countries. The hard right anti-European populists will be the largest party. And then another nine countries will be second or third. That's a really, really big seismic shift and earthquake in European politics. And it's been around for quite a long time. And part of the problem is, in fact, that the centrist politicians, people like Macron, turn it into a contest. You're either for him or you're for Le Pen. And that really, really hasn't helped. It's really helped drive this, this revolt across Europe. Bruno, really good to be. Tremendous reporting from Bruno Waterfield. Uh, uh, not just uh, speak to me, but filming himself as well with the fires in the background and the horns. And everything. But it was good to be able to get uh, Bruno reporting uh, very much from the front line of that protest in uh, Brussels right now. What does all these actually mean in in broader geopolitical terms? Is there actually something going on or is it just some, some unhappy farmers in lots of different places? The Times is diplomatic editor Roger Boys is here. What do, what do you think is going on here, Roger? Is this a, is this a thing? Um, well, first of all, I'm also impressed by Bruno Porterfield. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Um, no, it's... Um, well, there's a process going on, isn't there? There's a there's a loss of faith in centrist politics, uh, which is quite broad and uh, is not confined to the EU, um, but is um, amplified in the EU because um, because of because of different tensions, different domestic tensions. So uh, you know, uh, and sometimes it's resolved by. Uh, a change of government, like in Poland um, and like in Spain recently, um, uh, but not quite resolved. Um, um, and sometimes the far right wins, as it did in Holland, but still can't produce a competent government under Wilders. Uh, so it's... Um, uh, and, and Macron is, as usual, looking into the middle distance and wondering uh, if Le Pen is going to be his big problem in, when it, you know, comes to the presidential election in next year. So it's, you know, there are all sorts of uh, calculations going on. But they do, uh, the basic discontent probably began with COVID um, and the, um, the denial of public space, uh, public political space or, or, or the, the focusing just on anti-lockdown, pro-lockdown, uh, kind of protests. Um, and then it's moved. It's kind of progressed. And suddenly we've seen a whole coalition of protests going on. So you've got the net zero protesters. Uh, and in Germany, this discontent um, and some of the far right drift came from something as banal as heat pumps. So um, uh, the Germans wanted to, the German government wanted to make, you know, um, conversion to heat mm. pumps. Um, compulsory and uh, that would entail even some people selling their houses because of the sheer cost of the whole thing so there was a there was quite a it was close to an uprising about that um, and but then that fizzled down the work the centrist government worked out a way of perhaps repackaging it but each step each step seems like a step too far. So, uh, so you have those green policies, and you have the farmers' discontents, uh, and you have immigration. Which, and and as far as most of these countries are concerned, that problem has been around since 2015, when all the Syrians came mm. over. Um, um, and it's not just an immigration problem, but an integration problem. What to do with all these people, and how to convert them into loyal. Uh, citizens and also not put immense pressure on the infrastructure, the health infrastructure, the school infrastructure, and 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 jobs. So, um, so all these things have coalesced around uh, what I still call far right parties, but we could call them hard right because the centre right doesn't seem to address them properly. Mm. So and does it make a difference that in a lot of these? I mean, I suppose uh, um, in the UK, this is this is the case where they are centre right parties in power. Are they more susceptible, or is it? Well, I suppose actually, if if uh, or is it or is it centre left parties are more susceptible to these these problems, or is it just whoever's in government at the moment? Well, it, it, 
Well, there's two things. First of all, there's the timetable. So European Union has um, uh, European elections in June and it has lots of regional elections like in Germany in September. So so all all these affect your positioning uh, and Britain doesn't. Yeah. Uh, is not in that framework. It's, it, I mean, it, it, it feels like it's in a pre-election period, but, it, but it's more complex than that. Uh, so, so that's one thing. The other is uh, the economic cycle and the uh, cost of living crisis, mm-hmm. which has fed then into, into everything. So you get different groups within society who feel more deprived than others. And these feed in then to the insurgent spirit that you're getting. Um, and there's a countryside versus city uh, mm. tension, which is also feeding into the, the popular uprising. Um, and you can see that all these demonstrations, including Bruno's dramatic one, they, all, they happen in cities. And it's people, first of all, because you can paralyze a city with tractors mm. uh, and you can lay siege to cities like, you, like currently in Paris um, by blocking roads um, and throwing manure on the streets. But, but on the whole... Um, these uh, these farmers don't have much of a direct electoral impact. They they're not they're they're just natural insurgents uh, who who quite often are getting quite quite you know much wealthier than they uh, than they um, <laughs> pretend. Part, yeah. In part from the uh, the subsidies that come from the EU, which yeah. they are supposedly protesting about. Good um, old EU. Yeah. Uh, just finally, then, did we have we avoided this? happening in the UK because we had Brexit. Was Brexit the sort of, the release valve, if you like, albeit preceding COVID, but that sort of, you know, stop telling me what to do-ness, taking back control and all of that. Did did Brexit have that release valve so we haven't seen actually, you know, reform reform going from 10 to 13% of the polls? I'm not saying they're far right, but they're more more sort of right than Conservatives. We haven't seen that insurgency in the, the other European countries, I see. Well, I mean, Brexit was a diversion, really, uh, I suppose, from from something. I think now that Brexit has been sort of compartmentalised, mm. um, it's coming back, uh, the, those uh, basic discontents. Um, and we will see that, presumably, with votes for, you know, for the Reform Party or, or whatever, you know, they're, they're these, this kind of swirling electorate of a, um, and swirling support, 20, 22%. Uh, it, it's interesting that quite often these, these figures, uh, opinion polls, uh, for example, that you get for Richard Tice's party, mm. um, uh, match uh, almost precisely what's going on with the alternative for Deutschland. Mm. Uh, in uh, you know, it's a different system. It's different different things at stake, but it's there. It's a solid twenty percent, or not solid, but a, yeah. a more or less stable twenty percent. Um, and um, so you wonder: Do we share the same mm. uh, the same fears as 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 jo- or do these twenty percent share those? those fears uh, across the continent and could be it'll be really interesting to see what happens across europe in the coming elections and here in the uk too don't forget you can get in touch email me matt at times.radio or tweet about the podcast on your social medias if that's the sort of thing that you like but for now for me matt Trolley, it's great This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.